You're listening to the Virtual World Society Nextent Podcast. For this episode, we invited Mark Billinghurst, Professor of Human-Computer Interaction in Adelaide, Australia, and Chief Scientist of SuperVentures, as well as the Director of the Empathic Computing Lab. To get involved with our organization, head over to virtualworldsociety.org. What is going on, everybody? It is Maxwell McGee, host of the Next and Podcast. As excited as I always am to have another incredible guest joining us today, Mark Billinghurst, Professor of Human-Computer Interaction at Adelaide, Australia, and Chief Scientist of SuperVentures, as well as the Director of the uh, M- empathic computing lab i almost messed that up (laughs) um well thank you so so much for coming on the podcast oh it's my pleasure great to be here absolutely so mark virtual world society um is an organization that focuses so much on just the betterment of humanity in any way that we can but especially with the use of technology and you're somebody who has so many roots in virtual augmented reality bringing our lives to the virtual world what what was your original fascination with with the virtual world and how it how it aligns with our real world oh that's a great question so um way back in um, my deep dark past i guess i was involved in um, studying mathematics and during that time i was doing some projects on creating mathematical equations for solar flares. So it's quite complicated. And we were generating massive amounts of data, but um, we were looking at visualizing those flares using using graphs. This was in the uh, 1980s. And uh, pretty soon became clear to me that we couldn't really understand what this 3D structure of the solar flares were by looking at 2D graphs on, on pages. So um, I got very excited and involved in uh, computer graphics. And just at that time, that was when virtual reality was kind of having its first wave. And, and Tom Furness, who um, leads the Virtual World Society, he had just uh, founded his new lab at the University of, of Washington and was starting to promote virtual reality. And so I got really excited about using this technology to be able to visualize these complicated equations. And so I left um, New Zealand and went to um, visit him in his lab to do an internship. And then the rest, as they say, is history. And that started my career into, in VR. And I got really excited about how VR allowed you to be immersed inside your, your data sets and also how it enabled you to communicate and connect with people in, in, in new ways. And that's kind of led to the rest of my uh, career. Yeah, that's fascinating. So with the power of virtual reality, you can visualize mathematical data in kind of a physical form? Uh, exactly. That that was what got me started. But then soon after I, I joined the lab there, I got um, very excited about the potential of virtual reality and especially augmented reality to enhance uh, communication. So that led me away from visualization, but more into the um, teleconferencing and communication space and, and developing uh, new ways to allow people to collaborate using um, augmented and virtual reality. When you had first joined virtual augmented reality, what was the landscape like? Did a lot of people know about VR and AR, or was it still kind of a little bit of, of, of kind of a small club? Oh, no, it was very much a small club, although there was a lot of hype that was increasing. So 
Um, this was in 1989. And at that time, I, as I said, I got excited about the technology, but in, in my home country of New Zealand, there were no computers that were powerful enough to provide a virtual reality experience. And so that's why I got uh, drawn to the University of Washington. And the University of Washington was probably only one of half a dozen universities worldwide that had um, uh, were doing research in virtual uh, reality. You know, the systems at the time cost about half a million dollars to buy the computer plus the head mount display and and uh, peripherals and accessories and the the experience was very very poor you could imagine viewing vr on a 320 by 240 pixel um head mount display and having a, a, a polygon budget of you know 2000 triangles for your whole virtual world so very very poor but we could see the vision and we could imagine what it would be like in 20 or 30 years time when you could um have um, photorealistic uh, vr and you could really feel like you're immersed inside that environment so it was a really um exciting time to be involved because there were it was very few people in this space and um and a lot of people were you know, had a lot of fantastic visions of what the future might be able to become yeah, and speaking of the future, especially looking at that old those old screens, so very very limited number of pixels, half a million dollars you said in order to guy buy the 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 computer and headset. I mean, it's wild that now you can buy one for what three hundred four hundred dollars. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, the um the tipping point for me came when um around two thousand and two we developed one of the world's first uh, collaborative augmented reality experiences that ran on a mobile phone oh sorry not a mobile phone on a um on a um on a, on a graphics computer so you two people could stand across it from each other on a table and they could see ar content in the real world and interact with it um, together so that was 2002 and um you know we, we ran that on a silicon graphics computer that cost about five thousand dollars at the time so the cost had come down a little bit um, but then about um, six or seven years later, 2008 or so, uh, I started doing work on mobile phones. And it turned out by that time, the mobile phones had the same uh, graphics power and compute power as the uh, the workstations that we were using um, you know, eight years or six or eight years before. So that made me realize that now, of course, we could do that same experience on a mobile phone. And, um, and, and, and then that you know, led to... Um, a lot of interesting work in mobile augmented reality. And I think we've, we've seen the same thing with VR. You know, you've gone from the half million dollar um, computers to, you know, what you can put, put together a really amazing VR system at home for about four or $5,000, you know, with a high-end computer and, and a high-end display. Or you can buy a self-contained system for a few hundred dollars. And, and you know, there was that system would have cost um well you couldn't buy a system like that in, in, the, in the 1980s it would have been millions of dollars if you could have even put one together yeah well it's incredible to see all of the developments that have happened throughout the years that's a drastic change between half a million dollars and now a couple hundred dollars or even a couple of, of thousand a couple thousand and and you know uh, half a million is still a drastic difference do you think that we have phones to thank for a lot of the AR that we have access to now because you can do AR on something as simple as Snapchat which is a free app to download oh of course so I, I definitely think the um, the rise of the mobile phone has, has dramatically dropped the commodity hardware costs down so you know the um, the uh, LCD panels that we have in uh, in VR displays now um, are so cheap because it's the same technology that has been 
built by the hundreds of millions of mobile phones. The the cameras, of course, and the the IMU sensors and GPS hardware that we have in um, mobile phones have all driven the cost of that technology down. And so thanks to that, we can now have um, AR and VR headsets that are so much um, cheaper. And, um, and of course, we've also benefited from other uh, areas of technology development, especially in graphics um, hardware. And, you know, we've got a huge growth now in use of GPUs, both for graphics, but also for machine learning and artificial intelligence. And that's also driven the cost down dramatically of um, the graphics side. And then, of course, networking hardware as, as well. You know, as everybody got online, the costs of networking and, and wireless hardware dr dropped dramatically. And so now we can combine all those pieces together into AR and VR systems that are really affordable. Yeah, I mean, seeing all of the different systems that you can access just on a regular day basis, totally for free, with decent, halfway decent Wi-Fi is, it's really mind-blowing. And I know that you yourself are a, are a researcher, and is there anything in particular that really excites you about the research that you've done recently in VR and AR? Oh, well, I think um, the really exciting thing is, so in our, in our lab, we've, we've been developing technology to help people better connect with one another, and particularly using uh, physiological sensors, like, like um, eye tracking or heart rate monitoring, to enable people to connect and, and help understand what somebody else is feeling and, and seeing. And the exciting thing is that those types of technologies are starting to come into the AR and VR devices as, as well. So, um, you know, it's it's getting be to become reasonably common now to have eye tracking in, in your um, AR or VR hardware. And um, you will start to see soon other sensors being integrated in as well. For, for example, the Hewlett-Packard Omnicept has um, a heart rate sensor built into it and also it can measure pupil dilation, it can measure your face expression with a face camera and all of those things together combined will enable you to create a, um, a really great model of what the user is doing and how they're, they're feeling. And you'll start seeing that becoming more commonplace in um, in headsets. The uh, OpenBCI, uh, have, have, the company OpenBCI had this project called Galea, which that were there uh, combining EEG sensors into a head mount display, so enabling you to be able to measure uh, brain activity in the head mounted um, display. So within four or five years, you'll have um, displays to be able to measure a rich uh, variety of cognitive and psychological measures and create um, a much better profile of the user using AR and VR. So, so I'm very, very excited about that. Um, you know, we've gone from having headsets that are just display devices to now having headsets to capture some of your behavioral and your physiological information, which um, widens up the dramatically the prospect of um, creating new types of communication experiences. <clears throat> yeah, being able to monitor people, I can assume is really, really helpful and beneficial for, for research purposes because you can tie a positive, negative, fearful experience um, to, to a certain emotion like that, that you know that, that people feel. Do you notice that that that's becoming more common as we're trying to figure out what experiences in virtual reality and augmented reality can elicit a certain a certain emotion, a certain feeling? Um, there's a lot of research being done in that area, and so it's a very exciting area to be in. And there are some companies starting to work in that space, uh, companies that are building tools that allow uh, game developers to monitor people's um, behaviors inside uh, VR. So if you know people are supposed to move in a certain way or, or be surprised or um, look at them a certain object, then um, using these tools you can monitor that and you can adapt your game to make sure that happens. There's also large potential uses for education so of course there are many many applications of vr for training but if you can monitor people's cognitive load 
and you can um, measure how difficult they're finding the, the training tasks they're doing, then you can adapt and uh, and change the training to make it more effective for them. And then in our area, we're doing a lot of work on communication and looking at how um, if you can measure people's emotional state, that might help um, change how you um uh, communicate with people remotely using AR and VR. So there's many possible applications that these types of sensors um, enable. Yeah, it's it's nice to see all the different senses that that VR is capable of now. I know that there are certain things that are that are that are missing, you know, such as smell and and taste in a way. But I know that there are also companies working on that in order to to develop that, to make it a fully, fully immersive experience. Are there, are there things that you yourself enjoy experiencing in virtual reality and, and augmented reality? Oh, well, the, the AR and VR experiences I enjoy most are the ones that let you connect with other people. So things like, um, you know, rec room where you can uh, communicate with people um, across um, the globe, or um, I've been particularly excited over the last few months to be able to share uh, VR experiences um, with my parents that they're quite elderly and um, has enabled them to do things they've always wanted to do. So, for example, my, my father um, always had a um, goal to uh, visit the ancient city of, of Petra um, in, in Jordan and, and view those ruins, but he was never able to make it. So um, when I saw him a couple of weeks ago, I brought my VR headset and I, I put it um, into the um, the Wanda application that allows you to wander around uh, the world. And we went to visit uh, Petra virtually. And so for the first time, he could walk down the streets and see the um, see the um, ruins um, uh, up close. And, and so that was an amazing experience for him to be able to do something he hadn't been able to, he'd always dreamed about doing. So I think that's the things that make VR really special for me is, is to give people those experience of amazement or, or enable them to, to fulfill those dreams that they've never been able to. Yeah. I noticed that those are starting to increase. And I know that games games are a really important piece of, of VR because it, it does make a lot of it does make a lot of money. But personally I'm I'm just like you. I kinda prefer more social experiences. I prefer that VR go towards a, a, a direction of, you know, uh, humanity first. And do you think that those experiences will eventually start to kind of overtake gaming? Because right now, most people, at least most people in, in the U.S., will use virtual reality for gaming purposes without realizing the unbelievable applications that it has right at their fingertips, such as Wander, the ability to just see a, an area that you otherwise could never have, have traveled to. That's a, that's a really beautiful story. Um, but do you think that those types of experiences will eventually overtake gaming and will start to focus more so on kind of more humanitarian values with virtual reality usage? Um, yes, definitely. In fact, many of the successful VR games are social experiences uh, anyway. You know, so you have um, most um, VR games now will support a collaborative gameplay. And, and also many people are, are starting to see the the um, use of game platforms for other social experiences. We've seen, for example, those large-scale uh, concerts held in uh, Fortnite um, with uh, Travis Smith and, and others where you've been able to have millions of people go online and, and view um, immersive um, con concerts. And you know, Fortnite's a gaming platform designed for um, team-based or, 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 or um, uh, I guess it's a 
a shooting game, um, but now it's been adapted to something else. So I think there's huge potential in um, non-gaming applications. And of course, that's why Meta and other companies are interested in this space because um, they're looking for the next type of um, social experience that could connect billions of people together. Yeah, I, I love the social applications, things like Altspace VR. Um, I personally work at Engage and I love working there just because, you know, not only is it social, but it's also for professional development. And do you think mm -hmm. that with with all these social apps that keep coming out, um, do you believe that in a way it will kind of replace how we communicate with each other right now through phones because phones are everything to us i mean we use it for instagram for facebook for snapchat calling messaging texting everything we use phones for will will vr in your opinion be an addition to it or a replacement for how we communicate well, I think VR will be an addition, but uh, but partly because, of course, with VR you have to remove yourself from the real world and be immersed in, inside um, the virtual environment. And oftentimes, with our phones, we're doing a task where it's important for us to still be aware of the real world. You know, we're we're, for example, using our phone to um, provide map information so we can drive around. Obviously, you've got to see the real world while you're looking at the phone. I do think, though, that there's opportunities for augmented reality to replace uh, some of what phones uh, have been doing because of course with augmented reality you can see the real world at the same time as you can see that content so a very natural application would be um, mapping where you want to be able to uh, navigate around in the um, real world um, but see overlay onto the real, real world that that map um, information so in many ways there's a much greater possibility for augmented reality to reproduce um, or, or uh, re replace what we have on phones um, compared to augmented to virtual reality. Yeah, it's really cool to see everything augmented reality has been able to do. And I'm assuming um, you've you've also seen, uh, especially at a AWE, they they talked about it a little bit, but they've also been talking about it much more recently. Is the contacts the contacts that allow you to um, to see things, to see augmented reality, images, visuals, things like that. And does that does that excite you? Virtual reality, augmented reality, getting kind of smaller and smaller, more convenient, um, or is it not necessarily a direction we should be going in? Oh um, well, yeah, definitely. I've seen the work that people have been doing on contact lenses, Mojo Vision, um, for example. I've just um, I think this, I read a blog post the other week where the CEOs now put the contact lenses in his eyes and they're looking to roll out their hardware for um, uh, certain use cases um, early next year. That's very exciting, but I think it's a long way away from everyday um, use. The um, technology they're developing is incredible, but it's I think their target market, first of all, is going to be people with visual disabilities and it'll be very expensive. So it'll be probably five, 10 years or maybe more before that comes down to the cost point where everybody can use it. Um, in their daily lives. But in the meantime, there's a lot of work that can be done in terms of validating those use cases and, and being able to provide um, exciting AR and VR experiences on uh, small form factor devices that aren't uh, contact lenses. So you've got a number of companies now, um, including Snap, for example, building um, displays that can go into regular form factor glasses and being able to um, use those to um, view and interact with their content. So I think that's a very exciting development. And then hopefully, you know, in 10 years or more, those contact lenses will be more widely available. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, you notice it with every single technology that exists. We had half a million dollar headsets. Now you can, right. you know, yeah. experience a lot of gaming for a couple of hundred dollars. TVs used to be incredibly expensive and, you know, a color TV was mind-blowing when it first came out. When Atari first started coming out with their games, people couldn't believe it and all those were were just tiny little pixels. They just couldn't believe they could play an electronic game in their home and now we've got graphics that are so advanced they're saying that we might not be able to uh advance it even further than 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 what they are do you think that the advancement especially with virtual reality augmented uh uh reality technology is still a ways away not in the way not just in the way that we deliver it like through contacts or headsets or our phones but also with with the quality of things because i noticed that even oculus like i have a great headset um, you know, the headsets I use and the AR I use, it's still, the pixelation could still be improved. Do you still think there's improvements to be made in the qualities that, that have always existed, such as visual and audio? Oh, um, definitely. I think we're, um, we're getting there though, that as I said, with the, um, with the visuals, the, the graphics, the GPU cards now are, are pretty much able to produce photorealistic, um, content in, in real time or near real time. Um, spatial audio is very good. The, the areas I think that are need the most development are the other senses, so the haptics and you know, um, you know, smell as you said, need it further off than taste. So uh, the the AR um, experiences now are uh, pretty much high enough fidelity to be useful in well, AR and VR experiences. High enough fidelity to be useful in many applications. One of the challenges I think. Um, there's not so much on the technical side, but on the social uh, side. So, you know, we can build these uh, small devices and everything, but there's um, has to be more to be done in terms of social acceptance. You know, what form factor should they be in so people are happy to wear them out in, in public? And, of course, there's a lot of privacy and ethics um, that has to be addressed as, as well. And so some of those issues aren't so much technology-related, um, but more, um, as I said, more societal-related. Yeah, what what let's elaborate too on on those issues because I think it just as it is important to be excited about this technology, we should also definitely be talking about okay, what are the problems that we need to need to solve? I noticed security is a really big concern, especially for parents of of young kids that want to access virtual reality um, technology. And um, I had I had a, a guest on Jeremy a couple of weeks ago, and he had talked about how he had put his headset on and he didn't realize he was still in his daughter's account, and he went outside um, to an area where it was where it was public. And he was immediately harassed. And there, there's a lot of beauty in, in the social aspect of virtual reality. But do you think there are ways that we can handle security better with this technology, especially with the social aspects of it? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, and um, um, there's also, of course, a lot of um, privacy concerns that m must be addressed. I mean, that's a, um, a really sad experience that he had when he was, um, I guess he was, in his daughter's avatar body, so to those people in the in the virtual world, he looked like a um, presumably a young woman or something like that. So it was um, unfortunately subject to harassment. I know Facebook or Meta and others are looking at that. Um, and then there's also the concerns around um, the 
privacy of the data that has been captured by the devices. So, for example, with the, with the Oculus Quest, um, you know, they have cameras that scan the real world and and use build a model of the real world to um, track and enable you to interact inside VR. But those same cameras and that video that's been captured could also show the images of inside your house or your bedroom or other locations. And um, presumably that's not what it's been used for, but um, you could imagine that um, unless we had some good controls over the data privacy, there could be um, um, other uses that that data could be used for as well. Um, or as I said before, you know, we're doing work on capturing physiological data like heart rate and measuring emotions. Um, but of course, if you if if you um, if you share that data, that could also be a big privacy concern. If somebody could see that I've got an arrhythmic heart rate or that I'm feeling stressed a lot, maybe my insurance company or my health provider would be getting pretty nervous about that. So there's huge concerns in those places as well. Um, and the, the difficult thing is that sometimes with this technology, it's not possible to foresee exactly what the issues will be until it's more widely um, rolled out. You know, there's been a lot of issues with social networking over the last 10 years or so. But when the very first versions of social networks were developed 20 years ago, um, people didn't really imagine what they'd be used for today. So it's, it's the same with um, with AR and VR. We, we've, you know, we can certainly raise concerns now about what might be the issues to address, but it's also very hard to imagine what they, technology may be used for in, in 10 or 20 years' time. And so we need to definitely have some mechanisms for providing good um controls and and also especially providing people to have um, control over their own data and, and their own privacy yeah you know it's it's so important because people want to feel secure when they're using this technology i mean it took a while for people to to feel secure even just using their phones you know all of us have a phone but some of us feel still very nervous about what companies are are doing what with our data people that are malicious do they have access to our data do I have, they have access to contacting us are they contacting us it's something that that certainly concerns a lot of people and and it is something that that can be improved, I noticed, but I, I love what you said about, you know, uh, about just the improvements that can be made with uh, with security. Now, as a as a professor, as a lab director, you know, you have so many different responsibilities of, of things that you um, that you work on. And it's really incredible to just to see, because I think the world needs more people like you that are um, that are not only sharing an experience like you did with your father. You know, I, again, that's a beautiful story. That's that's definitely um, the the highlight of my day is hearing, you know, being able to um, to see these ancient ruins through the power of virtual reality. But on a kind of a larger scale, um, is there anything you've noticed as a professor and lab director? Um, that is really exciting as far as uh, humanitarian values go, such as global warming, um, mental health, things along those lines. Oh, well, um, so um, in our lab, you know, we're the Empathic Computing Lab, and so what we focus on is helping people to build empathy with one another. And I think that's one of the really exciting possibilities that this technology offers. You know, with, with AR and VR technology, you can put yourself into somebody else's viewpoint and you can literally put yourself into somebody else's virtual body if, if you're in, inside VR. And that really changes your perspective. And I think uh, that type of increase in empathy is really important to be able to enable people to better, wonder, better understand one another and also to address some of these large-scale societal uh, problems. You know, people are less likely to have to fight one another or have wars if they can empathize with um, each other's perspective. Or if, if you um, 
have empathy for people in different social standings or, or um, you know, in different countries, then it makes you more willing to offer help or support them in, in whatever they're going through. Uh, f- for example, um, the uh, company uh, within, they, um, uh, about uh, 10 years ago, they uh, made immersive 360 videos of the refugee camps in, in Darfur in, in South um, Sudan. And then they uh, took VR headsets out to um, Davos and showed people in the World Economic Forum what it was like to be in those refugee camps. And, and for most of those people, had that never, none of them had been to those camps before. And so that gave them a whole new perspective on some of these um, issues that they were talking about. So I think the technology has fantastic ability to help create empathy and understanding with people. And so that's where we're putting a lot of our research efforts into that space. Do you think empathy starts with immersion or it kind of is finalized by it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I I would say say it's probably more accelerated um, by it. So of course you have to be somebody who has capacity for empathy already. And um, and then once you are able to put yourself into somebody else's shoes, then it helps um, increase that empathy. Um, and so I I think it's um, it's a great tool to be able to help people be understand one another's situations. Yeah, and again, the world needs more. Very certainly needs more people like you that are not only practicing empathy yourselves, but also creating technology that helps advance it. And starting from a point of empathy, I, I agree, is is really important. And in the work that you do, and especially the different career transitions that you've um, that you've made and that you've been involved with, how can somebody follow along the same path as you? Do you do you have any advice for somebody who wants to use technology, especially virtual reality, augmented reality technology, for good? Well, that's a great question too. I think. Um... The great thing about the AR and VR field is that it needs people with a wide range of different skill uh, sets. So, you know, I got into AR and VR and I said my my background is mathematics. So it turns out I was a very poor uh, programmer, but I had a a good um, ability to uh, imagine use cases with technology. And I was lucky enough just to surround myself with people that could help bring some of those um, imaginations um, to, to life. So I think in terms of building a career, it's really important to find what you're uh, passionate about and what and what skills you have to contribute, and then to join um, groups of people to help that become real and take take some risks. So, for example, uh, at the beginning of my career, as I, as I mentioned, I went and joined the University of Washington. It was an unpaid internship where I you know, had to pay my own way over there, and um, but it enabled me to connect up with this amazing group of people that then set me up for the rest of my life so that was a, a big risk but it created that great opportunity so definitely i would say find out what you're passionate about um find out people that are working in the, in the same space and take some risks and try and join with those people and hopefully you can get um collect connect with people that share your vision um as well the other great thing is that the barrier for entry is so much lower now than when i got started so when i was first getting started in, in ar and vr you know you pretty much had to have a a, a postgraduate degree in computer science to be able to uh, create your first um, AR and VR experiences. But now, you know, you can um, download um, 
app from Snapchat and you can um, you can um, download their development tool and in 20 minutes you can build your first AR experience with no no programming ability. And so it, it's become a really a very accessible technology for people in the arts and the creative industries um, in, in education and other industries to be able to create their own um, experiences. So there's no reason why people shouldn't try and get involved now. Yeah, absolutely. We need more good people and we need more good people like you. So I will say that, Mark, you are definitely an inspiration to those in the VR and AR communities, not only with your passion, but especially with the work that you are doing um, with the lab and uh, the Virtual World Society. Thanks you for just being part of the organization and for helping the world with what you do. Oh, thank you so much. And I would also mention that if there are people that want to get help getting started or need some advice, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm always happy to provide um, feedback to others and to help them in their own paths as well. So it's been a privilege to be part of the Virtual World Society and I'm, I'm hoping others would also join up as well. And I'm happy to help those people to um, in, in their own careers as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so, so much, Mark, for your time, your patience, your energy. I greatly appreciate this so very much. Um, and thank you again for for being on the Virtual World Society's Next in Podcast. Great. Thank you so much. And um, it's been a privilege and I'm happy to, I hope I'll get a chance to talk to you again in the future. Absolutely. Same here. Thank you so much for listening to the Next in Podcast. We will see you same time, same place next week. If you want to support our work, you can join free at virtualworldsociety.org to receive regular newsletters and updates, donate to help fund our projects and work, and register to volunteer and get in on the action.